honestly, that's that's how got what got me into podcasts in the first place. Like that podcast is so funny. I love that kind of comedy. You know what I'm saying? And that's why I think we, me, you, and Nick are the same person in a lot of ways because we all like that kind of comedy. Nick, you have to listen to it, bro. I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm slack and and I I, I promise I'm gonna get on it. So, because I'm bad with my finances, I haven't subscribed to their Patreon, and they released the episode for this week coming up on Friday, and I could tell you that the one coming up this week is a banger. Uh, you got to listen to it. It's really funny. I watched Mad TV a bunch, so I was familiar with Bobby Lee from that, like from back then, and so it was just funny to all of a sudden come across that podcast, and Bobby Lee, Bobby Lee does like five podcasts or something it's probably two but in my head it's like five different podcasts because he does tiger belly and he does a whole bunch tiger belly um it's funny the last episode this week was chris stefano i just saw his his show yesterday in radio city and he oh my god like that was my first comedy show i don't know if it's just because it was my first show or chris is that good but it, i couldn't stop laughing he is so fun remember him from guy code yeah yeah. yeah. He, he was on a bunch of stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. He's in New York. I, I really like about New York is the com- comedy scene. So there's two real places for comedy. If you're not familiar, it's New York City and Los Angeles. So Bobby Lee and Andrew Santino are kind of big Los Angeles comedians. And then like Chris Stefano, Sal Vulcano, Ari Schaefer, I believe. And there's, there's a bunch of them that are New York comedians and they're all friends. It's not like there's a rivalry like East Coast, West Coast. Like back in when you're growing up, but those are honestly like that's what got me into podcasts, and that's why I think I'm funnier than I really am. No, I love um love listening to them, and then I love they do so many visual bits that I end up actually watching them on YouTube. Like I watch the podcast on YouTube because it's that entertaining to watch. And, and as I say, like they do so many things that where they're like like this and then they do visual things where where if i was just listening like i'm the type where i can't just like visualize what they're talking about i need to see what they're what they're doing on it so i like watching their youtube i wish i knew that you watched them before because they had a show in portchester right down the road from where i am and uh it was a bad friend show they had a bad friends tour and i was thinking about going but i didn't really know anybody that listens to it ever since then i feel like everybody listens to it because at work there are people that are like oh i like bad friends it's like where were you two years ago Kevin. Yeah, well, they've they've been having, and I think it just started, or maybe I'm just late to the party, but they've started having guests on, which I feel like they didn't do before. Which I'm I'm kind of meh about because I like, I mean, they're they're funny without guests, but they had like the Kelsey brothers, and like they've just had like other people on that are certainly very very funny. So I feel like it's getting more popular because they're starting to almost collaborate and so you come on my podcast you know you come on bad friends we'll go on yours and yeah they do each other's podcasts it's great yeah doing each other's podcasts and stuff well i know what it's like to have crappy guests and without further ado i would like to introduce them um so we have ryan uh you remember ryan from one of the more recent episodes you know it was one of the better performing episodes that we've had so far but at the same time uh, ryan are you blushing right now or are you just been in the sun too much? Wow. Hysterical joke. Bring me up to bring me down. Um, thank you. I didn't realize it was one of the um, better performing episodes, um, but that's that's awesome to hear. Thank you. And no, just uh, just a little bit uh, just a little bit warm. Have not been uh, sunburned recently. Amazing original joke, though. It's awesome. 
Thank you. Thank you. I shut my camera off because I can't stop looking at myself. So don't mind me. Great. So I'll keep mine on. Brian's just talking to himself. He's a talking head. There's it's the probably better for everybody. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, so and then we have Nick with us. Nick was on the first ever podcast. That was honestly one of the most fun days in my life. Just you know, because like me and Nick have talked about a podcast for a while. We have a lot of conversations behind Ryan's back. We were talking about how cool it would be to have a podcast, and we actually did it. And I don't know how about you. That was very gratifying. Yeah, absolutely. It was. Uh, it was definitely. You know, I remember showing up to your place like not knowing what to expect, and after we were done, we we're like, "Holy cow! I can't believe we just pulled that off." I know, man. I know. And Pete, if you're out there, you're good people, man. Let me know when you free up. We got to get together again. Yeah, Pete. I mean, all of you guys, but Pete was an awesome person on the on the podcast as well yeah yeah you believe me aviation you meet some cool people and it's a smaller world than you think i keep saying that so i'll stop saying that but uh regardless so this is actually our third time trying to do this podcast today today the idea started as uh hey let's flight sim and do a podcast this could end up really good or really bad and i'll let you figure for yourself which one ended up being one thing's for sure that we were kind of surprised about like maybe the podcast wasn't great but their flight sim performance was, and then I'm not making excuses for you, Nick. But thanks. Uh, it's it just talks about how important a sterile cockpit is. That's yeah, that, I mean that was our case study for today. That's we we're doing God's work. Yeah, you know it just kind of goes to show you that we as humans inherently are not good at multitasking, and today was a good you know case in point. Give me one sec. Speaking of not being good at multitasking. On this episode of multitasking. So yeah, speaking of not being good at multitasking, I'm just going to flat out come out and say it. And I know we've talked about it a couple of times, so just act surprised. But um, do you guys know I saw a UFO the other day? UFO? Really? Yeah, UFO. So the long story short, I was doing C shift, so afternoon shift. And I was going out to do my daily inspection, trying to get my podcast lined up. Yeah, you, know, you got about 45 minutes to go. And I... And for, but for some reason, I looked up and I saw like this line of lights and it was really bright. And if someone works in aviation and they say it's not a plane, it's not a plane. This was not a plane. So I looked, it was a string of lights going all the way down. So for a good, what time is it now? 4.07 p.m., almost 72 hours, I thought I had seen a UFO. But somebody today was like, hey, you know that's Starlink? And I was like, what do you mean? Starlink. I know what Starlink is, but what do you mean it's Starlink? They're like, yeah, it's like a, a train of satellites. They call it a train of satellites. And she sent me a link and I looked at the link and I felt like a goddamn idiot because I was full out telling, hey, mom, mom, I saw a UFO finally. And she's like, that's probably space junk. And that's exactly what it ended up being. So not only that, my mom's right. Okay, sweetie. Uh, have you guys ever seen the Starlink satellites, Ryan? Yeah, I have once. And it was... It was pretty amazing. I mean, it, it definitely catches you off guard because I was down in North Carolina when I saw it and there was very little light pollution. And so we were sitting around having some drinks and all of a sudden I look up and see this line of white dots moving in a perfect line across the sky. And it definitely was pretty incredible to see. So I can see how you can be thrown off because I definitely was when I saw it. Yeah, and, and Nick, I'm definitely, if we've seen it, I'm sure you've seen it up there in the skies. It's kind of funny you, you bring this up. Um, this was probably a couple of years ago. I was flying out over the ocean. A couple of years? 
That's how long this has been going on? Yeah, no, this has been going on for a while. This was when I was uh, flying cargo. Um, we were going to uh, Europe and remember being out over, over the ocean at night. And I saw the same thing you sort of described here, a string of lights all going in the same direction. It, I, I would almost describe it as it looked like um, tr- someone was skipping a rock like across yeah. a pond and we were looking underneath, like if you were beneath the surface of the water, that's what it felt like. And uh, the the captain I was flying with next to me, he immediately recognized, oh no, that's the Starlink satellites. And what was actually really cool, I didn't tell you earlier, was um, you know everybody out over the ocean is usually monitoring the same VHF radio frequencies, you know, just in case anybody needs help or there's an emergency or something. So everybody uh, that night over the ocean after the Starlink satellite made itself, you know, appear and disappear, everybody was, you know, chatting over the radio, like about how cool it was. It was actually really cool, you know, hearing different accents talking about what they just saw, you know, hearing the, you know, the British pilots, the German pilots, the American pilots, like, you know, it was just really, really funny and really cool experience. Maybe it's just because I haven't spent a lot of time in space or anything, but reading about what Starlink is and what, what it's, trying to do is actually fascinating, especially since it ties into aviation. So many airlines are trying to integrate Starlink into their, their Wi-Fi system and not to flex, but the whole point of this was to flex is that I flew JSX on this and tried the, the Starlink Wi-Fi and it is really fast. Like I am rich. So um, just know, no, I found a, a good fare. Pretty humble about it. Yeah, very, I'm a very humble person. I, I hear that all the time from my mom. So it is amazing technology. I've heard like a, a lot of ships and yachts and stuff like that are tapping into it. Um, I didn't realize that <clears throat> like airlines and aircraft were starting to to tap into it. So it is pretty amazing technology that um, Wi-Fi is going to be like the hotspot is you know instead of being like a localized hotspot, it's almost like He's turning the uh, the globe into a hotspot where you can be almost anywhere and have service. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, he is in Elon Musk. It's his whole thing. And, you know, it's funny. They actually have a tracker for the satellites. Oh, really? You can look in, at night and try and find one. So anybody at home that does not know what I'm talking about, take a moment, look up Starlink Satellite Train. Dave is the man. Enter Google. And it'll come right up. One of the first things you'll see is a, a photo of the there's a lot of cool long exposures out there. I kind of want to do that myself. But my mom, the, when I told her, she's like, maybe it's a shooting star. I'm like, mom, in New York, in New York City, I saw a shooting star. No, no, I don't think so. I don't think so, mom. <laughs> Jesus, um, mom, if you're listening, I know you are. Sorry. But so that was a humbling experience for me. It's just been an interesting week in general because we have this nor'easter without snow. That's doing nothing. Honestly, my weather station, I have a weather station, make fun of me. It says we have 0.2 inches of rain so far. So I'm kind of mad at my landlord who told me to move my car because it might get flooded. Uh, I want to go down and have him move it back. His or her car is now parked in your spot. Flood, it's going to be awful. And he's moved. (laughs) In we go. (laughs) Psych. So this is a remote podcast um, as well. So. Uh, Ryan's coming to you live from uh, you. I forget. I know you're in the Boston area. I think that's fine. Boston, Boston, Nick's in Jersey. New what New up? And then uh, I'm in White Plains for now, at least. So, ooh, for now. Yeah, for now. I, I do have that. I can. I we can talk about. It. I don't care. I'm moving upstate soon. Uh, I am taking a job up in Albany. So we're gonna be doing more of these remote podcasts for sure. 
Although, Nick, it's only two hours door-to-door from where I am. Uh, I know our friend John, he does that commute several times a month. He said it's not that bad. So I'll be down to, to dog sit. Heck yeah, man. You're welcome anytime. I mean, Ryan, you can continue to say that you're going to join us and then not join us. So, Yeah, no, you guys go ahead. I'll catch up. Well, it's, I think, uh, if anything, this will help us be closer friends because uh, we can plan days to go visit. Or Nick, take that out. Um, yeah, going to have to edit that. Uh, start over. Uh, what if I just bleep it? I, I gotta figure out how to bleep. It. <laughs> Can you bleep it so it sounds like we're we're just Call- lighting up the podcast? Yeah, with swears. I, I think really, I can we're do just it. Saying each other's last names. I can try to do it. Actually, that'd be pretty funny. <laughs> when you look at aviation, I guess let's keep it aviation related for now. Leaders and stuff. I did want to talk about like the guy today. Like you guys don't have to really comment on him much, but I was doing my piece on Air Jamaica, and uh, they were talking about this guy Butch Stewart. And uh, they called him the uh, Caribbean Richard Branson. So he kind of, he was, I forget what he did. He owned like 10% of all the Caribbean hotels at one point. Uh, or sorry, 10% of like the cumulative total, if that makes sense. And Air Jamaica was struggling big time. And they had two buyout attempts and nobody, sorry, nobody bought Air Jamaica. So they came to him and was like, hey, can you do something here? And he came in and pretty much turned the company around. So they were an airline. I mean, they still weren't profitable for a while, but he he went right after competitors. He started launching routes to the United States, building tourism up. And uh, American Airlines responded by dropping fares by 50%. That shows you how seriously they took him. In the late 1990s, he came up with this way forward plan where, or sorry, they set an objective that they were going to be profitable by the year 2000. And they actually did it. So they the losses were dropped by 66% while revenues were increased by 25%. So talking about leadership and just the competitive edge you got to have to be a leader. Um, I don't know. You guys can talk to to yourselves. If there's anybody that comes to mind, um, do you have any similar leaders that you look up to in your professional lives or your personal lives? It can be either or. Well, so going back to him, you said it was Butch was his first name. Uh, no, that was his nickname. Uh, oh. I trying to buy at time. Gordon was his, was his first name. Um, he was gotcha. from his, and his quote was, uh, I never thought I would get rich out of it, but I thought Jamaica and all of us would be poor without it. That's why he took over the airline. And, but he, I, I and like you that. said that he owned the resort. So was it kind of, you know, it was, it was certainly, you know, pride in his country, pride in his local airline, but also kind of a business move you could say yeah. to yeah, say, Hey, why don't was... I revitalize the way that people are going to come spend money at the hotels. So it's almost monetizing. I mean, it was a smart move on his part. I own these resorts. The airline that brings people here is failing. Why don't I come in and buy the thing so that people pay me to bring them to my resort? It's a pretty good ecosystem. He built. That's a good himself. point. I didn't even think of that. Wow. I was in, I was in cloudy day mode for most of today. So I didn't think of it much. I know that it says here that he bought two hotels, the Bay Rock and the Carlisle Montego Bay. And he pretty much turned them around and then he founded Sandals. So he's the founder of Sandals. He opened up the second hotel as another Sandals resort in Sandals Carlisle. So he built that whole chain down there. And then uh, I know there was something about air conditioners. I'm just looking for it. Uh, where he like that's how he started making money where he's like hey i'm pretty good at this quite quite the entrepreneur i mean it's smart though like he he was a like a, you're right he's not really a martyr the way he was making himself out to be 
he took an airline and went right after American Airlines, who, by the way, three years earlier gave him an award for his his efforts in restoring tourism to Jamaica. <laughs> he's, thanks. Three years later, he's their rivals. So it's like, uh, you know, even Nick, do you have anybody even in sports like that you can think of that are somewhat like that speak to you, I guess, as a leader? Well, if I said Derek Jeter, would you get mad at me? Not at all. Honestly, Derek Jeter was one of the Yankees that no Red Sox fan could, no actual Red Sox fan could say that they hated. You know what I mean? Yeah. No. um, uh, Honestly, for me, you know, Derek Jeter's career as a baseball player kind of, you know, mirrored my upbringing where he was somebody I could look up to. But um, just listening, you know, to Butch's story and, and, everything with air Jamaica that this does really give me big, uh, David Nealman jet blue vibes. If you know what I'm oh, saying, Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's somebody I could look at as well. But, um, as far as, you know, leadership for me, especially, you know, being in the airline industry as a pilot, there's, you know, nothing for really, for me, that's more important than, you know, obviously in the cockpit, we have to have leaders and especially the, the person in the left seat flying as a captain, one of our biggest aspects that we kind of follow is crew resource management, specifically leadership effectiveness. You know, um, I think the best leaders out there today, and you could kind of cherry pick each story that you could find and you can identify these certain traits. Leadership or leaders that I know that are effective at what they do, they identify people who are good at what they do and they respect expertise of others. So, you know, yeah, one person doesn't make a team. But at the same time, it's how well do they create an atmosphere where people feel like they can speak up. So if you take all of these, you know, little tidbits of leadership effectiveness and how we can incorporate others, I think it effectively makes a good leader. A lot of people think being a leader means you have to be the best at everything you do. And that's just not the case. You have to, you know, the jack of all trades, the master of none. I keep saying that recently. And if you can't be good at every, like the best at everything, you have to defer to those who have a little more expertise in it. And it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not all Ryan. Yeah, we are definitely not all Ryan. (laughs) Where did that come from? (laughs) I'm I'm building you up and I'm going to bring you down. So be careful. (laughs) Yeah, here it comes. One, two punch. And I I really like Jeter as an example too, because when you're a leader, people follow you. So even Red Sox fans I knew growing up, they would just talk about how they would aspire to be somebody like Derek Jeter. And, um, you know, hearing that at first, you know, it takes a while to get used to, but then you start seeing it, you know, and you start realizing like, oh, like he's, I should start leading by his example. I should start doing what he's doing. And you see that change both in your professional life and in your personal life as well. And one person that we're definitely, we really have to spend its own podcast talking about Herb Kelleher. I just love everything he stood for and everything he did. And very similar to the way Neilman and Barger started JetBlue, bringing humanity back to air service. Leadership, as you said, Nick, is so important in everything we do. And I I say the word, and it's one thing to say, it's another thing to mean it, is leadership is such an important part of of, of industry like aviation, because without good leaders, you know, that safety becomes an issue. Other people's lives might be at stake over some poor leadership. You know, it's everything's safety. So it all starts at the top. Do you want to be a manager or you just want to be a better professional in what you do? There's so much material out there to start reading. I know one person, uh, me and Ryan talk about, and we've made it 23 minutes into this podcast without talking about Jocko. Nick, have you read any of Jocko's stuff? Do you know who he is? 
Sorry, I don't know why I was just muted there. Um, no, I can't say I have. Do you have audiobooks? I'll, I'll, I'll uh, get you them, honestly. Yeah, drop, drop me some links, dude. So pretty much Jocko was a Navy SEAL, and he put together like a pretty strong leadership development curriculum, almost in a way. And he talks about it in his books. I mean, he has a company, Echelon Front, and everything where he'll go into big companies and kind of write the ship if there's an issue that they identify and stuff. But his books are at top of leadership and personal development. So one's called Extreme Ownership. So he talks about how you have to own all your problems, how you can't make excuses, and you're, you're responsible for everybody above and below you. And so you have to lead up and you have to lead below and stuff like that. And then the other one is dichotomy of leadership, which I really like. It talks about balance and how you can't live at an extreme. You have to be in the middle somewhere uh, about a bunch of things. And so I have some posts actually on dichotomous factors I want to start doing more of. But those are kind of those two big ones. But things like that, I know I know you, you really like that stuff. So, And it's on Audible, like you said. Mm-hmm. Promo code. Uh... <laughs> yeah, promo code. <laughs> yeah. One thing we were talking about, and we talked about plane spotting a little bit. I guess, what was your, if you had to pick, okay, let me let me find a way to phrase this question. When we were at Dowling, what was your most favorite memory of the things we did? Like, I know, Ryan, you were with me in the JFK air traffic control internship. Yeah. Um, we brought those donuts in thinking we were ready to go on local. Well, and we didn't bring them in on day one, if you remember, and we got a lot of uh, flack for not doing that. We were told we were the first group of uh, JFK Tower interns that came in on day one not bringing donuts. So we had a lot of backpedaling to do after I that. About that. I think we brought them in day two. We also had the government sh- shut down during our internship. But yeah, I guess that's that's an easy example or a easy one um, because I harp back to, I mean, it was a short period of time, but we packed a lot into it. During the government shutdown, we actually still went in. They they asked us not to. <laughs> we still, still went in. <laughs> yeah. To be completely honest, we walked in. They're like, oh, you guys didn't need to come today because of that. But since you're here, and it was some of those days that um, we actually got to do some pretty cool stuff going up in the cab and down in the uh, – ATC sim that they actually have right there at the tower. So definitely the JFK internship was a huge one. I think just we've been talking about plane spotting a lot, but if I can put all of the plane spotting experiences together, I definitely feel lucky that we, you know, we all met each other and became friends because there aren't a lot of people that that like aviation to the extent that the three of us do and as well as the people in our um in our group did and so just being able to hop in a car and figure out which arrival was currently being used at JFK or LaGuardia and having that dictate where we were driving that day was definitely definitely a lot of fun cool adventure to um to do that and then there was you know other non-aviation stuff just going into Manhattan on certain days and just kind of exploring that that was um that was really cool we also went down to Atlantic City on a few occasions through our aviation program. Yeah, I forgot about that. I yeah, thought about that recently. Um, to the FAA. And so I, I think back to that a lot as well because you get to see the the different technology. I think one of the times, maybe the second time that I was there, they've got this huge facility at the complex in Atlantic City. And the purpose of this 
long, narrow building is to test different size landing gear on different types of asphalt, different thicknesses, materials, all sorts of stuff to see how those materials react. And I think they were testing the <coughs> B380s landing gear um, when we were there. And so they had this A380, you know, landing gear, just one of them suspended from the ceiling. And the test was they pave inside of this building, the full length of it. And it was like three or four football fields long. And they, this, this landing gear, they would slam down on the ground and run it the entire length to see how the asphalt, you know, warped or, or flexed or moved. And again, that's for full nerd level, but being able to, to be at the facility where that level of thing, that's just one of those things. I had no idea. I mean, of course that needs to be tested, but it's not immediately something you think about that needs to be done. Like, of course they need to test, you know, as, as these planes get bigger and wider and the landing gears change, you know, they're, they're arriving into airports. And so the infrastructure needs to adapt to that. I think on the um, last podcast that I was on with you, Dave, you were talking about how, you know, electricity at airports is being researched heavily right now, because if EV aircraft are really coming down the, down the pike here, the airport infrastructure is going to need to adjust and update and upgrade so that they can support that sort of thing. And so there's this whole other side of research that's going on. And in a lot of ways, it's the FAA that's doing it. And one of the facilities they do that at, we got to go to through our college experience a few times. So I think back to that. So for me, plane spotting, the FAA facility in Atlantic City, and then the FAA through our internship at JFK would be kind of my three, if I'm allowed to have three top memories. Do you remember the shuttle driver from, uh, well, both from Dowling, uh, Al? Yeah. Who, who could forget Al? Yes. But also, too, do you remember like, the guy that drove us to Atlantic City? We were worried he was going to fall asleep the whole time. Yes. It was a, a uh, the, the windows, I think, were like unlocked or something. And so they were like rattling at one point. Definitely was an interesting drive. It wasn't great. Um, and then, Nick, I know you, you have a unique, because you were part of the flying club, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, I look back and all I can really remember was this song. I think it was called uh, was it called Careless Whisper or something. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Just blaring in the hallways. Yeah. No, honestly, um, I think like our little our little apartment on top of the bagel lady's house. I think that whole experience of, I mean... I can't remember how much notice did we have that the dorms were not going to be open. Not Cause, much. Cause I had, I had already moved in cause I was doing RA training and like we went to a meeting and they're like, yeah, so we're going to close the dorms <laughs> and they came around and we're like, all right, so where are we going to live? And they're like, uh, we'll, we'll let you know. So then I'm, I'm pretty sure I just texted like you guys like, so want to get a place? <laughs> and then I think within like three days, we not only had a place, but we furnished our whole place because it was like the Labor Day weekend or it was the week before Labor Day weekend. Yeah. So, yeah, we just literally hoarded like, you know, people's used dressers and we somehow got this like 50 inch Hitachi, like big tube square TV. And I I can't recall for the life of me how we even got it up 
in that apartment, but we did. And, you know, I, I think literally like that whole, like that whole time we were living up there, like that was honestly, that was so much fun, you know? And, uh, who could forget, you know, yingling and, and wings at Momo's, you know, <laughs> yings and wings, <laughs> yings and wings, you know, on Tuesday nights, but, um, bringing it back to aviation. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we're all pretty busy and, you know, I just remember constantly being busy between like doing flight team stuff. Um, I was working part time at an FBO in Teterboro called Meridian and just trying to like run back and forth and maintain somewhat of a social life. Like, I think you guys kind of kept me sane throughout that whole time. You know, you're welcome. It's a pleasure, honestly. And I think my point with that really is because, you know, I speak, believe it or not, to a lot of people that are starting to get into college. Uh, shout out intern Sarah. Uh, what's up? Uh, there's a bunch of other people, though, that I've, I've talked to who are like, I don't feel like I'm doing the right thing in college. And my point is, like, listen to all the things we were doing. Does it sound like we had it figured out? No, absolutely not. I was like, I was pretty sure I was doing the wrong thing every day. And I can't believe how well things turned out for the three of us, you know, post post graduation. You could say that about 95% of the people that we know. Yeah, um, I think in the five percent was one of our roommates, Anthony. Top of the class. I wonder what he's up to these days. Yeah, um, he's great. Yeah. Great, he's good people. Yeah, for the the college turning out the way that it did, which was unfortunate. I've always been proud of like our alumni, if you will, and not that we like talk as alumni, but just in the sense of like seeing where all of our you know all of our friends are in their professional career, like. Kudos to that college that is no longer around anymore because it definitely, I mean, the classes were awesome. I think they just got into some stuff that um, when it came to decisions around the types of courses, to I, I don't know really what exactly happened to it. But as far as like the aviation side, I think if it was strictly just an aviation school, we may still see it today. I, I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I just feel like the professors were right. The location being on basically its own airport were right. Being in the New York area where you've got tons of, you know, places where you can place your students afterwards. Like we just were in a such a prime location that it's unfortunate that the thing ended when it did. And, you know, luckily we, we got to, you know, we, we, we got out and, and started our careers and we're good, but, um, just sad that that ended because ton of really good memories there. Yeah, it is unfortunate. And it's, it's a growing trend, I guess, for private colleges because it's hard to compete with state colleges with uh, the student loan crisis and everything going on. They can, if you're going to have a high tuition, it has to be worth the tuition. So it's what the eye of the beholder, um, we thought it was worth it being in aviation school. So you're right. I, I do feel like there's some value there. It, could still be around today if they made the right decisions. But, you know, having five presidents in four years generally is not a good trend. Yeah. My Again, another point in this is just make sure you do your research at your school you're going to because. Oh, please, God, do your research. I mean, Nick, you, you went to a community college right before you came into Dowling? Yeah, just because um, for me, it was just trying to figure out how I was going to be able to afford flight training and college at the same time. So it was more. All right. Well, you know, my grades exactly or leaving high school, my grades weren't exactly the best. So it was like, all right, well, you know, go to excuse me, go do two years at a community college, you know, figure life out. Um, got my private pilot license at the time. And then it was all right. Where do you want to go to school? And 
for me, Dowling was uh, obviously the closest to home, but it was still far enough away where I felt like, you know, I could, could be on my own and that's what I wanted. So, you know, it was either that or, or go take some, you know, ridiculously high loans to go to, you know, Embry-Riddle or Florida Tech or somewhere. So, you know, obviously you guys know what decision I made and, you know, here we are sitting here like 13 years later or whatever, but, um, would you say it worked out for you? I mean, I think it did. And, you know, I feel like, um, definitely at the time I had some envy of like, you know, I had friends that went to Riddle, um, UND, you know, all the big aviation schools. And it is kind of funny to see we all ended up in the same place. It's, it, it is kind of funny, especially on the pilot side. It's, it's a huge rat race. Oh, get this rating, get this, um, you know, achieve this milestone, then work at this company, then get this job. And, and it is funny, like to see, you know, it doesn't necessarily follow this logical order of, oh, okay, well, because you went to this school, and because you went to this job, you know, two plus two equals four, that actually doesn't ever hardly end up being the case, especially, you know, I have buddies right now that went to Riddle that still can't get hired at their dream airline because of XYZ factor. And then meanwhile, you have Joe Schmo who went to community college and did everything, you know, part 61 training, you know, is the most senior, you know, left seat, seven, six captain, you know, a captain under the age of 30. You know what I mean? So it's just kind of funny to see how that works. Yeah, I get it. That's such an interesting point. And you kind of answered, I started thinking about, you know, a question that I had for you, but you ended up answering it that at the end of the day, especially if you're going toward the professional pilot side of things, you know, obviously do as well as possible in your classes. But when it comes to the name, you know, on your degree being, you know, one college from the other, the airline's probably going to be most interested in how many hours you have, how you are as a person leading, you know, every decision with safety in mind and, and kind of that being your persona versus I went here versus I went there is probably and I think that that's kind of the newer thing that's happening and that might have been part of the cause of you know the college going away is you you end up finding out when you get into your professional career that the first job out of college looks on your resume and because you probably don't have that much of an extensive resume yes they're interested in where you went to school depending on which way you go but after that they're they're most interested in you as a person Exactly. Um, and how dedicated you are going to be to the the thing. So if you're if you're at that point, you know, in your life where you're starting to look at going to college and you're interning places, do the internships, talk to individuals who have gone through it. And what you're going to find is it's not going to matter that you went to, you know, I won't even name colleges, but that you went to one college or the other, mm-hmm. because after you achieve that first position, you're not going to really bring up your college again like you know if i were to switch to another company i guarantee they're not going to talk to me about my my college career they're going to talk to me what i did at my previous position and and how i think i could best fit into the culture of the of the new company or you know what i could bring to that company they're not going to say oh well what was your gpa at you know they're not <laughs> they're not interested so focus more on how you can achieve the profession you want because the name that's on the building of the, you know, institution that you choose to go to will be irrelevant after four years. Exactly. And just to kind of add on that note, Ryan, if you do happen to go to, let's say, one of these bigger aviation colleges, 
absolutely that's good on you i i still encourage you to you know uh stay the course and everything like that and the reason why i i bring this up is because some of these bigger universities i.e und riddle uh schools of that nature you do or i should say you are afforded you know more opportunities for let's say internships than you might say at a smaller college obviously the whole part 141 versus 61 with you know how many hours do i need to get my atp for flight training that's definitely a huge factor too but i think back in the day i used to think it was going to be a much bigger deal of oh what's my resume going to say where is my degree from absolutely nobody has paid any mind or any attention of you know the fact that my college or says dowling let alone my college doesn't exist anymore you know what I mean? I graduated. I have the transcripts. I had a decent GPA. And that is literally the only thing they cared about. What What I don't get is where was this advice when we were in college? Because the advice that we got was, you know, you have to resume build and the resume is all about what you do at college. Like I, I still say, like, if you can be involved with something like if I had known I wanted to be in airport management before, you know, I really get going. I probably would have been more involved with like the AAAE club, even though that didn't really, you know, do too much sometimes. But, you know, I, I would have been more, I guess, forward moving to do some more things. Like, again, like Ryan said, I'm thankful to have gone to a school that sent us to Atlantic City that hooked us up with the internships that got us exposure. But I don't think, like I said, like even from my internship at Logan in airport operations, like that's kind of distant now. Like they're not going to quiz me on what I learned during my internship. All that, the whole, the whole premise of my internship, if I talk about it, is that's what got me into airport operations. So, you know, all these things are forward moving, but they're not critical. So don't lose sleep over it, you know? And Ryan, it's funny you say that like you hire people. Yeah, no, it, I think we talked about it a little bit on the last one about how I interview people, but I don't typically ask the standard off the shelf questions because I'm not entirely interested in the answers to be really <laughs> rude for a second there. I don't I don't care where you think you're going to be. I, I don't want the textbook answers because I know when I ask the textbook questions, you're, you, everyone who's ever prepared for an interview Googles how best to answer the where are you going to be in five-year question or yeah. tell, tell me about your weaknesses. Like I want to know those things, but I'm not going to ask them in the way that comes off the textbook. I want to get to know you as the person. And so going back to the topic around college, I think what people who are hiring see when they see that you went to college is not necessarily where you went to college. And certainly if you go to, you know, if you go to Harvard and you've got that on your resume, sure, they're, they're going to be like, oh, you're, you know, you went to Harvard. But what it's really showing is you dedicated yourself to something for a period of time. And that's what college is on a resume is, look, I did something consistently for a period of four years. <laughs> and that's what a, a company is going to see in you is that you're able to, to stay somewhere and apply yourself to something for a period of time. Because after all, that's what a company is looking for out of you. If you're you know, applying to be part of a, a team of people at, a, at an organization is they want to make sure that the longevity is there. They want to make sure that you're a culture fit, want to make sure that you're going to apply yourself. And so, yeah, as I say, I yes, I, I do interview and, and hire people. And I don't necessarily look at where they went to school. Do I look if they went to school? Yeah, because again, I'm looking to see if, if they can apply their, themselves. And going back to what you were saying, Dave, about where was that advice when we were young? I think we're in an interesting period of time where people are able to become 
really, really successful without going to school. And so to get all philosophical here, I think our parents, who are the ones that I think you're referring to when you say, where was that advice? Um, well, because a lot of times they were the ones saying, hey, you got to go to school. You got to go to school. This is what this is kind of your life cycle. You go to high school. You may not know what you're going to do when you grow up, but that's OK, because then you're going to go to school for four years. And because you go to school for four years, you're going to get a really good job and you're going to be able to buy a house and you're going to go through kind of this exact model that is kind of expected of people in our society. And now we've got people who, you know, are in middle school and high school hopping online, starting a website and making more than people who have graduated college. And they're, they're all of a sudden saying, you know, I don't really need to go to college because I'm making six figures plus off of this website thing that I threw together. And so there's this whole other map that's been created in our lifetime where I think we're going to be one of the last generations probably that really was heavily pushed into that mold of you go off to school. And, and I'm, I'm thankful that I did. And I, you know, I think everything kind of came together career wise for the three of us. And we all went to, to school and went through that mold. So it's a little hypocritical to say that that's not the right thing to do, but there is another way. And I think that that's why we, the three of us are somewhat questioning it in a way is because there there are tons and tons of people who are choosing not to go through the mold that we were told to go through. And they're very highly successful because there's, I, I honestly think it's the internet that's driving this change in our society where you don't need to go to school and you can be very, very successful. So you think I should be an influencer is what you're saying? So I think you should get an only OnlyFans and um, well, I do become already. an influencer. There you go. But you know what I mean? I know what you mean. Uh, let's say, Nick, for you, I know the big part of the airline is the interview. Now, I don't know. For me, like, I, at least where I work, the interviews are the same thing every time. It's been that way for six years. So people coach up. You know what I'm saying? They, they, there's ways to cheat interviews these days, you know? And not that there's anything, I guess, wrong with it. Because you still, if you're looking for certain things, I guess you could still, you know, uh, outline objectives and pick the right candidate. But. Nick, for airline preparation, isn't it a little different because your interviews are so specific? Uh, yes and no. So really, it's funny, probably the last four years of my life, I think I have been oriented towards airline style interviews. And I'm happy to say like I've, I've had a really fun time with it. I've interviewed at companies where you know I've had to speak to a psychologist as part of the interview. I've interviewed at companies where you know I walked in there thinking, you know, oh my God, they hate me already just because they have this kind of cold blank stare as part of their interview style. It's been a really fun experience, but I think for the most part, a lot of these interviews are designed to basically, if you're somebody who wants to hide behind a personality or hide behind you know, let's say a front of, oh, I'm cool, comic collected, they will purposely either one way or another, try to make you come out of your shell a little bit. And that could be a good thing or a bad thing. For me, I would say the number one advice I would have for someone, you know, thinking about, okay, you know, I'm going to be applying to airlines pretty soon is know what you're getting into. There is literally a whole side of this industry that's dedicated to interview prep. And I have gone into a few interviews without interview prep, 
thinking, oh, I got this because, you know, I'm used to one way of interviewing. But really, it's this whole unwritten rule of, oh, don't do this, wear this color tie. It really comes down to little minuscule things like this. Yeah, so it's definitely kind of its own own little world, but it's not really something college ever really prepares you for. That's why it's so hard to put a value on experience and stuff. It's like they use sports as a reference, but it's why they got sent to the minor leagues for a while before you make it to the majors is... You know, you, you got to prepare in the real world and adjust to where you, you want to go and where you want to be. So, you know, you, you don't learn everything in college, but the real world on the job experience will do more than you more than catch you up to where you got to be. Assuming you do it right. I think we we can all say we did it right. We all worked in some form of line service or FBO management and worked your way up. There's a lot to be said about that type of uh, grind. I don't know about you guys. Maybe it's just we're getting older, but. I feel like sometimes you almost burn out sometimes. Like, have how do you guys combat burnout? For me, it's hard because I don't think I manage it well. I think for the past year or so, I just haven't done what I'm supposed to do to keep myself from burning out. You know, I'm making, I'm identifying the problem. I'm making adjustments now, which is all you can do. Now I have to be more proactive and, and really make sure you take care of yourself. So for you guys, with the aviation industry being so up and down and very demanding, both physically and emotionally, like, How do you guys best handle the workload and what's expected of you? I would say awareness is probably where, where I would start just because, uh, you know, kind of going from the transition of, you know, working in airport operations to then being a professional pilot, I kind of didn't really know in the beginning that I had a limit of how much I could possibly work and still keep my mind in a sane place where, you know, I wasn't going to be in a grouchy mood coming home from work every day. And really awareness was the key. So managing my schedule as close as I possibly can, where I can add enough of a fudge factor in my day, where trying not to have every single minute planned of my day was so hard for me in the beginning, just because I wanted to be the most efficient person where, all right, I'm going to sleep exactly from 1030 to 630. I'm going to hit the gym at 645. I'm going to make my nice big protein breakfast at seven, uh, you know, 745 out the door by 8.15, work from 9 to 5, come home at 5.30, walk the dog from 5.30 to 6. Like, if you do that every single day, and again, I'm a huge, huge fan of being as efficient as I possibly can, you're going to completely burn yourself out. And how that's translated into a flying career, I could almost tell right away when I get my schedule every month that, you know, here's the here's the point where I'm at risk for burning myself out. And really, it, it really starts with taking care of yourself at well. You know, I was never a big person with going to the gym, but I know now that if I'm not in the gym at least four times a week, you know, even if I have to drag myself there, I know it's going to pay dividends later for my energy levels, for my overall mood. So eating right, you know, exercising on the layover. There's so many things that go into it, but really the number one thing is knowing what what your limits are, both for your mind and your body, and know how much you can take before, you know, you're absolutely going to break down. I definitely agree with awareness piece. I think, well, definitely several thoughts on this. So awareness is huge. Such an interesting point, Nick, around you so easily can get burnt out by having a routine. I think that's so interesting because you get up at the exact same time, you do the exact same thing that hit home with me because when you when you hit the burnout point, you feel like you're going through the motions, like you're on a, on a hamster wheel, if you will. So I think for me, being aware is huge. Finding ways to decompress, like Nick said, having a, a hobby or some sort of something outside of work 
where you can decompress and not think about it. It's tough to tough to turn it off when it is your passion. And so I think what's interesting about this topic for our industry is most I guess it's safe to say most people in the industry, but maybe the three of us are just in a our own um, bubble. But we think about aviation even when we're not at work, and there's not a ton of different industries. I think I, I don't know where you go home and you continue to think about it, and yeah. so we're so passionate that we're passionate to a fault. Correct. In some cases, if that if that makes sense, where. We bring our passion home with us because, well, this is the thing I love. And so what took me a while is actually learning how to become aware. Because when you're doing what you love, like the like the three of us do, how could you ever be burnt out? Burnout, that's for those, you know, nine to five in a cube type type jobs. When in actuality, anyone can, especially if you've got a routine, like Nick said, but also like Nick said, finding, you know, getting getting awareness, finding a way to decompress, doing it regularly. And then there was this other thing that I saw in some research, which was don't take, if you get to the point of burnout, and this is definitely the case for me, if you get to the point of burnout, don't take that week of PTO or vacation time, pay time off or vacation time and think you're going to come back and be completely fixed of your burnout. What the research said that I was reading was you're better off taking a single day more often than taking a bulk of time off and thinking that that's going to do the change. So maybe instead of taking five days off, take five Fridays in a row or something like that off where you can clear your mind just because when you kind of break up your schedule a little bit, it almost hiccups that routine that that Nick was talking about where it's like, oh, Friday is typically the day that I... oh. Actually, today's going to be a me day. Today's going to be a day where I can do that thing where I decompress that doesn't have to do with aviation or whatever my passion is. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do some stuff out in the yard at my house, or I'm going to work on that house project that I haven't done in a while, or I'm going to get in the car and go for a drive and just kind of take that, have that feeling of a, of a snow day back in school. Take that snow day for yourself, if you will, from work. But at least for me, the research I was talking about is true. If I go on a week or two vacation where I'm like, oh, you know, this is so nice. This is going to really help with the burnout that I'm having. When you get back, you're not necessarily going to be like, oh, okay, completely refreshed. Maybe you will. Maybe, you know, everyone's different. But for me, I'm more of a one day every few weeks, take a day for yourself, do the decompress, don't think about planes for, for 24 hours, and then which get is so hard to do, which, so which hard is hard to do, so hard not to do. Oh my yeah. god, sitting on Flight Radar 24 app, looking at the planes flying over you, um, but just doing something that's mundane and almost kind of uh, just is in front of your face, yeah. and you're just kind of uh, your, your mind is off of that that day to day thing. So, yeah. That was a couple of the thoughts that came to my mind. Yeah. And it's really interesting because again, um, being at the airline that I currently work for now, I have the opportunity to share an office with people who have been, you know, doing this as a career for 30 to 40 years. And I ask them, you know, Hey, how do, how do you keep your you know sanity from doing the same thing over and over and over? And a, a lot of pilots that I work with, you know, not only are they pilots, but they, they also have completely separate careers outside of aviation that kind of keep them engaged too, just because the aviation industry as a whole, as I'm sure everybody knows, has so many ups and even more downs than ups. 
with that, um, the number one piece of advice I've received is, you know, definitely find your niche outside of aviation because, you know, one day and one day soon when the industry takes another downturn, it's, you know, you're going to rely on that extra thing that you're doing to kind of keep yourself going. So that, that's, that's really how I would, you know, seal it up and tie a bow on it. Nick, you said early on about how important it is to stay aware. For me, that's always been my problem. I don't know. You have to get outside of a problem sometimes, you know, and if, unless you're outside the problem, you can't see what adjustments you need to make. So, it started at my last job I was at. I was a line tech in Bedford and I loved the job so much that I took it home with me. You know, I would go home and, and I would text Ryan and say, why are you sending a plane to signature? Um, and I wouldn't talk to him for a week. I still hate him to this day. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. Eventually it wears on you where you just become miserable in the job and see there, you know, it's, if you go too far to a certain point, once you're, you're past the point of no returning and you just can't switch it back off. You have to, probably find a new place to go. You know, not to say that it's your fault. Some situations are different than others, but if you're in a bad situation, it's hard to to not burn out. So my point with that is there's, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Just try to stay aware, diagnose the problems where they are, keep the outlets like Nick and Ryan talked about. Because for me, my outlets were running and going to the gym. And this isn't the first time this has happened in my life where I've been just flustered and out of whack with with the way work's going, where I've kind of abandoned it. I'm pretty excited once I get up to Albany to get back to it. Do whatever you can to not lose those outlets because they're what's keeping you safe. They're keeping you detached. Things like music. Like I, I just think about times when I'm at the gym and I'm just listening to music and not even lifting. And like, it just feels good to have a second life and be good at something other than aviation. Because you're right, like, what did I do for my days off this past week? I went to TWA Hotel. It's like I've been there before. Weird. I went there to plane spot for Unga planes on my first day off. And then what am I currently doing right now is I'm flight simming at 32,000. I got to see what my step climb is uh, coming up. (laughs) There is a good part of it. I don't know about you guys, but. Like if you can find things you enjoy about aviation that aren't stressful, because for a lot of us, our jobs are highly stressful. It's just the way aviation is. So something like flight sim might be a good detox to keep you reminding like the aviation, the good part of aviation. But like it's a double edged sword because you could also further burn yourself out. I think I'm really glad we talked about this because it's just not highlighted right now. It's kind of the whole point of my blog, you know, is combating these negative forces that we're exposed to every day. Especially for signature platinum members, bless you. <laughs> signature. <laughs> I still got emails okay, from my tail from my Tailwinds account. Oh, do you really? <laughs> from the five minutes I flew the King Air. <laughs> King Air, you've flown some pretty cool planes, man. I yeah. gotta say, if I could take one track record, like you were sending me pics of the sim, and just keep sending me pics, man, because. I love learning all these things about planes, even though, and maybe this is part of the problem. <laughs> I'm going down the path right now. But the more I know, the happier I am. So, yeah. Well, remember, we got to, we have to find a hobby outside of flying and outside of aviation. I don't know what it is, but we have Dave, to we find just it. just talked about this. It's out there. <laughs> it's literally, it's out there. It's out there uh, somewhere. I should start a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're saying, Nick. Ryan, I feel like you're the same way because you and I talk about podcasts every now and then. But it's such a good just white noise, you know, even when I'm at work. And that's why I, I get kind of annoyed because we're not in high school anymore. You should be able to listen to some type of something. If you're productive at work, who cares? So um, for a long time, I would listen to sports talk radio 
or podcasts or something just to keep me sane because it, it really keeps you focused. And finding something like that is really conducive for your health because like some people work better in silence. Some people work better without silence. You know, everybody's different. It's a, it's interesting because I don't know what kind of people you guys are, but I know that you get it, you know? Again, kind of the more off topic from aviation you can you can get so like like you were saying with podcasts like comedy podcast or something that i can just throw on and go about you know myself just allow like give your brain a break from all of it even if you're like you know this is my this is my passion i want to keep going after working a eight nine ten twelve hour day to come home and hop on flight radar 24 or flight sim or whatever like it's it's good but i find for myself and and it's new i mean i was not always that way but i definitely reached a point of burnout but being able to just tune out for a bit and do something active that's completely different from what i do at at work has definitely helped me i feel almost perform better at work because when i'm dialed in i'm dialed in i don't feel like it's one day that's leading into the next day it's like I lived my work life. I went home, did a little of, uh, you know, me time listening to a podcast, mowing the lawn, you know, whatever it is. And then you get mm-hmm. back the next morning and you're fresh and you can tune yourself back into work rather than just staying tuned in hour after hour. So kind of just going back to that. It's a passion, but a passion to a fault if you let it be that way. Nick, you what approach path did you live with? Me and Nick lived on an approach path. We literally couldn't get away with it if we tried. Yeah. I mean, even right now, I could see a United 787-10 literally out my window. All right. Stop bragging. And I grew up at the very busy Worcester International Regional Metro Boston Airport. Intercontinental? Intercontinental. Hmm. Well, they dropped that from the title. They thought it was too wordy. Can we do a podcast on why some airports are called international and some are called Jetport and Swissport? The Portland International Jetport is that because there's an there's already a Portland International Airport out there. There is, in like in oh in the world you're saying yeah. So oh, like maybe P, maybe PDX then KPDX. Okay, sorry KPDX. Thank you. Have you read the articles about people that are like somebody wants to go to Portland, Oregon, and accidentally book a ticket to Portland, Maine? I heard some. I I don't know. There's no way this is true, but they swear it is. They somebody bought a ticket to go to Saint Petersburg, Russia. And they wound up on a ticket to St. Petersburg, Florida. On a <laughs> I swear to God, somebody told me this story and they were dead serious. I thought it'd be colder. <laughs> I heard something similar. This is bad. There's a Sydney, Nova Scotia that has an airport. <laughs> they end up in Sydney, Nova Scotia instead of Sydney, Australia. Yeah. Today, Mike. I mean, you know, next thing you know, you're going to buy a ticket for Oakland and you end up in Oakland. Oh, all right. All right. Which is how you say it, right? Oakland. I, th- I still think it's how you say it. I don't know. I don't, I don't think it is. We're, we're talking about New Zealand, everybody. Dave, we met someone from New Zealand who said that's not how they say it. All yes. right. Well, I was, I was misinformed. So, in fact, it, it is Auckland, right? It is Auckland. All right. Well, okay. This will be my coming out and saying sorry. <laughs> I was a dick in college and I told everybody, I swear to God, this is how you say Oakland. And I think I like believed you all the way up until like one minute ago when Ryan just clarified it. I'm very convincing. We had like a foreign exchange student or something at Dowling for like a semester. And we said that to, or you were like, come here, you, you need to prove something to 
these guys, and he was like, we say Auckland. <laughs> we don't say Oakland. <laughs> I, like, vividly remember that. I remember it, too, now. Actually, I don't remember it. What are you talking about? I'm sorry. It's okay. Remember the guy, uh, what was his name from, we called him Drama? Oh, from, yeah. He looked like <laughs> he, Drama from from Robin Big. Uh, Robin, um, from Fantasy Factory. Fantasy Factory. Robin yeah. Big, yeah. Both. He was in the cafeteria. Uh, not to keep reminiscing on Dowling, but that's how we all know each other. And Nick, did you ever think like what my life would be like if I didn't transfer to Dowling? Yeah, I'd probably be a millionaire by now. Hmm. <laughs> I'm kidding. Without a doubt. <laughs> it, it, no, it is funny. I am somebody who analyzes every decision I've ever made in my whole life, but that's actually one I've actually never really thought about. Thanks. Now you're going to keep me up at night. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's worked out. No, it really, it really, ha- it really has. Um, honestly, no, I've never given it much thought, but if I'm going to think out loud here, I probably would have went to, I honestly probably would have ended up going to Riddle or some school that while other people could afford, I definitely could not afford it. And then I'd, you know, be complaining about how much, you know, I'm paying in student loans right now, trying to pay all that back. So honestly, no, I'm I'm fun as our, you know, experience was at Dowling. I've never actually second guessed it. So believe me, I get it. My student loans are kicking in right now from Fordham and I still think it's one of the best decisions I've ever made, but my wallet doesn't agree with me. A big reason why we're here today is is what I I chose to go to to Fordham. You know, business in general is fascinating. So I guess, do you guys want to have a set? Do you guys have anything that you want to go for? Not really for me. I'm I'm just here so I don't get fined. (laughs) You know why I'm here. There could be some stuff that they think is that they want to talk about. They have a platform, a little bit of a platform. Yeah, you got to get some feedback, like questions. Feedback. We, we, I wish that we could maybe it'll come big enough one day where we can start answering fan questions. Yeah. That would be pretty cool. Chat. Yeah. I do have ideas for bits. Like I like the idea of talking about leaders. Maybe, Ryan, next time you're on, we'll pick a leader and, and really highlight them and talk about some like key lessons and stuff. You can always pick and choose something from – from like one case study yeah and apply like it. like ryan who would be the the model leader of like the business jet or biz business like aviation world like would it be the net jets ed bolin nbaa guy thomas floor um that's interesting yeah is there one person like that oh everybody knows this guy you know or this girl i think it's the VistaJet guy i'm gonna trigger ryan right now possibly thomas floor yeah i mean it's such a tough industry we do a lot of the same things yet very, very differently, which makes it even more confusing. So I'm sorry, but it's like, oh, you're in private aviation. So like NetJets, and and it's just easier to say, yeah, like NetJets. But when you break down, you know, the, the different types of way that you can fly in a private aircraft, yeah, um, we're so vastly different from one another. That, apples yeah, and absolutely. oranges. I mean, yeah, it's apples yeah. oranges when you, when you are knee deep in the industry like I am just from like this vantage point. But yeah, I mean, we always look to NetJets as being like the pioneers of the private aviation world, even though they're fractional versus charter. And that's just kind of, again, one of those differentiators between what I do and what what they do. But then you've got the wheels up of the world who they set out to democratize private aviation, which basically just means make it more accessible to the masses versus being a, you know, ultra, ultra, ultra 1% of the 1%. I mean, they went, they went out and bought 
King Ayers and the point of of Wheels Up at the beginning, I believe, was hey, let's let's take the the one hour flight leg and make that our business model. Like, mm-hmm. if you want a fraction of an airplane and pay a lot of money to to be part of this huge enormous fleet globally flying brand new aircraft you would go with the net jets of the world but if you need to get from atlantic city out to the vineyard or atlantic city out to nantucket memorial day weekend you would call wheels up to do that you know and so we there there's so many different ways that people go about it that that's a tough question nick if there's one single person i think we learn so much from each other because we try to differentiate and find the niche that meets us. I mean, harping back to one of the earlier conversations, I think around the competitiveness of airlines, it is very funny to hop on Flight Radar 24 and click on an aircraft that's arriving to Boston Logan from San Francisco, and maybe that's a United flight, click on the airplane directly behind it, and it's an American Airlines flight, and they're arriving from San Francisco, having departed yep. just minutes from each other. It's fascinating to me how savage the airlines are, where it's just like, oh, you're doing that route? We are now too, you know, yeah. versus versus the breezes of the world. Um, Avello. Avellos of the world who are like, let's find those small markets and do things differently. And it's unfortunate and and they're doing great, but we've seen a lot of those airlines come and go. And it's so strange that, and I guess maybe it's not strange when you're in that industry, but it's so strange that you can fill a United 75 and then you can fill an American A321 and they depart three minutes apart from each other from (laughs) the same airport. And that's the business model is one airline pioneers, the other one follows, and they both do all right. And their only hope is that the other one fails miserably so that they can add another flight or buy a bigger airplane to do the same things to attract that that same business. Whereas the private aviation world is like, we all have access to generally the same fleet of aircraft, but how are we going to utilize that aircraft where you would call us for this type of trip and call them for that kind of trip. So I we're see. in this we're in this ecosystem where we kind of exist because of each other, but all are very competitive with each other as, as well because we're going after the the same clientele. What I do is is brokerage, so we don't own or operate our own fleet. So what our job is is to go out into the market, find an aircraft that can do the trip that you want to do. And so you've got the people who own fleets like the wheels ups of the world, like the net jets of the world who build their fleets around the missions they plan on doing. And then you've got the business model that I'm in, which is we don't own or operate an aircraft fleet. So you come to us and we will go find an aircraft that, that can do the the mission that, that you want to do. So we talked about, I think Dave early on, you mentioned like Richard Branson, just as a as an aviation leader, I think an interesting person to talk about a little bit would be um, at some point would be like Nikki Lada. Um, oh, I like Lada that. Airlines. Yeah. Um, he, he was, you know, he pioneered um, a, lot of a lot of things had a, it was, I think the launch customer for the global 7,500 um, was hugely into it. Jimmy Buffett just passed away and not that he had an airline, but he was huge in aviation um, when it came to 
his little fleet of um, of aircraft that he had between seaplanes and private jets, and he had a seven X. Um, he flew into our our work. Yeah, and I think he had a he had a seven X. Yeah, he flew it. Holy cow! I'll send you the tail number off there. Um, and I think he had like a grub, Grumman Widgeon, maybe maybe a Grumman Goose and a Grumman Widgeon private aircraft. I think he had a PC twelve. So like, there's a lot of famous people who um, you know have have put their name of course you've got travolta. john travolta with 707 yeah. and he's got an eclipse 500 i think he's got a falcon he's got a 73 now too now 900 he traded this or not traded the 707 in but i don't think he's got the 707 anymore i think Qantas took that as a museum piece down in sydney i think that airplane's on display now i don't think that's his but yeah he got a las vegas sands x 737 bbj that he's nice. now done up to be his own so there's ton of there's tons of people that i look to as as being fascinating people we could definitely talk about them all we have a lot of time i did want to ask you um we can kind of talk about some of the current happenings real quick before we sign off what do you think about delta airlines taking 95 percent of wheels up i think it's very interesting so to go back a little bit so wheels up started as i mentioned by buying into King Air, Citation Excels, painting them in the Wheels Up branding. Then they started to expand. I mean, they've got a huge customer base. And they got to the point where they needed more planes. They weren't, Textron wasn't making them, almost wasn't making them quick enough for the for the size that their company was becoming. So Delta had a branch of their company called Delta Private Jets. And so they actually owned and managed an enormous fleet of private jets. And not a lot of people knew that unless you were in the industry, in the private aviation industry, in which case that statement is fairly obvious. But if not, Delta Private Jets was an enormous provider of aircraft. We utilized Delta Private Jets a ton, everything from light jets up to G650 ER type stuff and everything in between hundreds of pilots. I mean, they were a huge organization. Wheels Up ended up purchasing them or partnering with them or whatever you want to call it. And so they actually soaked up that enormous fleet. And so I believe, if I'm correct, that's where the Delta relationship started was Wheels Up needed the the lift from having enough aircraft. They weren't getting enough aircraft at the time to, to meet the demand. So they went out and acquired or however they got Delta private jets, they got them. And so now we're at this point where he being the CEO at the time, Kenny Dichter, brought the company public, which was the first private aviation company to do so. Definitely a fascinating thing to do that. Things haven't gone so so hot <laughs> since. And so being tactful here. And so I think they got to the point where, you know, financially the stock really started to tank. A few of the executives started stepping down customers started to get really weary of how things were going. The brand itself, because people were buying into, you know, getting on board, it's it's the same thing that happens to anyone who owns a fleet who is really successful at it. When you get enough people, you reach a critical mass where you don't have enough airplanes to service all of the customers that you have. And the customers are buying the blue and white tail marketing. And so now all of a sudden you run out of those blue and white tails. And so they had to go and buy Delta private jets. And so now people were buying into getting on those specific aircraft, but in actuality, they were getting on 
you know, when the plane actually showed up, it wasn't an actual uh, wheels up aircraft. And so stock tanked and things started kind of going wonky. A lot of the money was that was invested in them, they were burning through. And so Delta got involved. And again, I think Delta got involved because they were harping back to the earlier relationship that they had always had from wheels up getting in with Delta private jets and swooped in and gave them a big investment to keep them afloat and are keeping them afloat. And I've got several friends who work with me now or work in the industry with me now who previously worked at Delta. And a statement that I've heard time and time again is Delta is the type of company that when they do get to the point where they press the button on investing money into a company, they're not going to let it fail. And so I think where we're at now is Delta's going to keep this thing alive for you know a, a long period of time. I think they'll they'll probably be okay in the sense that they'll stay open, but I think that they're going the lifestyle brand that they created at the beginning where hey, when you become a Wheels Up member, yeah, 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 we do the airplane thing, but come to our Super Bowl party, come to our, you know, and, and kind of that lifestyle thing. I think some of that type of spend we may see go away and it, and they'll just kind of go back to basics of just being a private aviation company. So I think it's interesting. We definitely are getting phone calls from customers who are saying, um, you know, uh, this this is okay. We're We're happy that the parent company is the, enormous conglomerate of Delta Airlines, but also an airline's going to own us now. So I don't know if I love that because I fly privately to not be on the airline. So it's interesting. You know, uh, it, it's a it's a very interesting just dynamic over the past few years, just seeing the acquisitions that occur of just, you know, you mentioned Thomas Fleur earlier with VistaJet and Vista becoming Vista Global Holdings and them just soaking up, you know, Air Hamburg and all these other operators around the world, you know, people are getting bought up quite a bit. And I think Delta coming in and, and buying wheels up, they could have just let that thing die and they didn't, they see a lot of value in it. And uh, yeah, I think, I think that that's kind of, kind of where it's at now. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's anything, anything else to say, really. It's interesting to, interesting to watch from afar. Let it burn like a dumpster fire. Just kidding. It's I not would that never hard. say that. Uh, <laughs> it's not irreversible irre- by any means. Sometimes these shakeups is exactly what a company needs, especially for one with such a wide client base. You know, we still see the Gamma Jets all the time in Westchester and, you know, they're not going anywhere anytime soon, but you're right. They have to turn that model that they came up with. They have to make it profitable again. How do you do that? You know, Plain Sense has really grown that market share. I'm sure they stole a lot of customers from, from Wheels Up, and some you could say the same about. You know, like you said, Vista Global is eating up things like Red Lake and all these other carriers that just kind of compete with Wheels Up on these segments. So yeah, um, Plain Sense. That's an interesting. That's an interesting one. They're they're a company that from afar seem to be controlling their growth very well. I don't know if that's true or not true, but perception's reality. My perception is they're a company that is really controlling the growth and they've stuck to their niche. And I think that that's really, really, really respectable. Hey, we're going to do PC-12s and we're going we're gonna to crush it. 
And then they got some customers who were like, hey, we would love to go west of the Mississippi, Mississippi and not take six fuel stops to get there. How about jets? And so then they got into the PC24, which I think was really smart. Like, hey, keep the, very you know, keep the, keep the uh, manufacturer the same. I might be making this up, but I feel like some of the glass cockpit of the PC24 might be the same as the NGX model of the PC12. So their their ability to promote captains from the PC12 up into the jet, I think is a fairly seamless transition. I, I would say that that from a, from a business perspective seems like a company who is very controlled growth. They know what they're good at. They're going to take you on a PC12 out to Nantucket, the Vineyard, the Bahamas, and I know from working with them a little bit, when they reach capacity, they shut it down. And what I mean by that is a lot of times they'll offer their aircraft up to companies like the one that I work for to charter aircraft. But when they reach a certain critical mass of airplanes to customers, all of a sudden they're like, yeah, don't call us for a while because we're, we we don't have enough airplanes to offer our owners and you guys and our priority is our owners, so see you later, bye. So it's, a, it's an interesting interesting company to watch. It's cool. We really see it on display in the Northeast where we have so many of those destinations within a short one, two-hour window away from each other. Thank you, Ryan. Nick, what do you think about United about to take deliveries of the A321LR? Um, You know, I think, uh, I think the A321 is definitely going to be the airplane of the future for sure. Definitely a little sad to see potentially some of the plans for that airline to potentially replace some of the 75 flying. Um, you know, as an outsider, outsider, I've always loved, uh, you know, the United 75s and the type of flying that they've done. Yeah, I mean, um, I think the first uh, first line uh, serial number just did a test flight around Hamburg. And uh, I think early December now we're looking, I think the first flight for them, they're going to do O'Hare to Phoenix in the A321. So, you know, it's going to be a slow transition, but eventually, you know, who really knows what the what the actual plan is, but it sounds like it's going to be a one for one swap for seven fives, which, you know, seven fives always going to have a special place in my heart. So, cause you can, you have airlines that have both Boeing and Airbus fleets. So I, part of me hopes that when Boeing comes up with the seven five replacement, like they say they're going to, they haven't given uh, up on it yet. Uh, have, I, <laughs> I think everybody gave up on that a long time ago. I just, I think they have no choice. They can't just let Airbus walk away with that market. I, I think their replacement is called the seven, three, seven max. 10 <laughs> that nobody wants i mean they do want yeah. it but it doesn't it doesn't compete as our friend pete said like it it's just the payload you can't carry that payload anymore like the 75 is such a unique beast you yeah. know it can make that flight overseas using an efficient runway length carry more payload than the a321 can boeing if they're gonna i feel like that they're gonna compete in the next 10 to 20 years they gotta in the next five to ten at least come up with a a plan to get to that uh, mid-range market. You know, who's to say that United or Iceland Air is going Airbus now that they don't have that in the back of their minds. So I don't know. There is hope, but like you said, every, every day that passes, that hope kind of dwindles a little more and more. No, we'll yep, see. We just, we just need the 757 Max with the Leap engines. <laughs> I love it. Inject that into my veins. There you go. Well, I, I'm pretty good, guys. I don't know about you. What Do you, you have anything else you want to touch on today? I don't think so. You know, it really grinds my gears. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Do it. Well, thank you for coming on. I'll 
cap it here. We still got some simming to do maybe. So I guess I'll talk to you guys again in a few. But uh, until next time, folks, thanks again for listening. Thanks, Dave. See ya. See ya.